may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truthtoyou.org. That's truthnumber2letteryou.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. That's jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skobak. Shalom, Jano. How are you, my friend? Great. Good to be here with you. Wonderful to have you back on the program because we are continuing to investigate the alleged 365 messianic prophecies in the Tanakh that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament. This time around, we are continuing in the book of Daniel. We started in the book of Daniel uh, in our last... No, I think we got through uh, oh, right up to chapter... Well, right up to chapter 9. Now, uh, you said, let's uh, pull the brakes on because this is going to take some time to get through and we're going to get into chapter 9 in this episode. Before we do... We had some comments. Let's see now. We had a comment from... G'day, Tammy. Tammy gave us a comment. She said to us, look, why would you want to take away hope from people who find Jesus, you know, he's to be a healer, a teacher, uh, you know, whether he was Messiah or not, he still gave the world, you know, hope and love and a brand new way to live with freedom. Uh, and, and he, you know, he's revered throughout the world and so on and so forth. Why would you want to take that away from people? Now, Sophie, Sophie, the truth to you comment queen. G'day, Sophie. Uh, wrote back with an excellent response. And I'm not going to read it all. People can go to the last uh, 365 uh, series. This happened to be on uh, number 301 to 306. Sophie begins her comment. She says, Tammy, rewrite your post and insert the name Zeus in place of Jesus. Would you feel the same? That's the way she begins. And it really is an excellent response from Sophie. Uh, there's a couple of other comments in that regard. Bonnie wrote in on uh, on that theme and she said, my thought is that if someone wants to believe in a false God and it gives them comfort, so be it. What I appreciate about the teachings is I am learning that what I was worshipping was indeed a false God and I can make the choice to follow the God of Israel. It is now an informed decision. Thank you, Bonnie, for your, for your input. Uh, any thoughts there, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the question that was initially raised is a, is a, a good question. Um, and I don't really think that what we're doing is attacking, uh, you know, the teachings of Jesus. So I think that if someone does find what he actually teaches to be uh, meaningful and helpful in their spiritual life, uh, this show really is, is not relevant to that. Um, you know, the, uh, I think that what I find is that there is very little that Jesus actually teaches that uh, differs significantly from the teachings of the Tanakh. Um, I mean, I, I might be wrong in my interpretation, but I, I, I see him essentially as someone who is uh, Torah observant and mm -hmm. encourages uh, the Jewish people to observe the Torah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't think that uh, I'm actually doing a, a, another program on Wednesday evenings with uh, William Hall from Texas. Ah, we're, yes. We're actually going through the New Testament from, we started with Matthew 1, we're up to Matthew 10, I believe now. And, uh, you know, we're trying to see whether or not the New Testament uh, is contradicting the Hebrew Scriptures or in line with the Hebrew Scriptures. Mm -hmm. And so far... You know, there's there's very little, if anything, that Jesus is teaching that's out of step with the teachings of the Torah and even of the rabbis. So mm -hmm. I don't think that um, going through this list of alleged prophecies and showing that actually uh, this list is really not 
uh, an accurate list of prophecy at all. Um, you know, it, it it does call into question whether Jesus uh, is the Messiah of the Hebrew Scriptures, but it doesn't mm-hmm. call into question whether the things that he taught were edifying or were, um, you know, worth listening to. Uh, well, this this plays into the next question. We we got a uh, another question in the comments section from Cynthia. Good day, Cynthia. And uh, her question is a little bit um, out of left field, but this is what she writes. She says, "I was wondering. I was just wondering if you had lived during the time of Yeshua, if you would have said, release to us Barabbas.'" That's an interesting thought experiment. It um, is. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's actually, what's interesting is that there's a, a book that was written about this topic, actually. Um, Chaim Akobi wrote a wonderful book called The Revolution in Judea. Oh. And he's more famous for his book, The Mythmaker, about Paul. But The Revolution in Judea basically discusses the gospel stories and, uh, you know, points out that it, it's very peculiar that um, the, this, actually we'll be mentioning this tonight because it's the second prophecy that... Um, they point to tonight that mm-hmm. Jesus comes into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passion Week, and these crowds come out to greet him, saying, Hosanna, the son of David. And so it, it seems that there's a lot of excitement about the possibility that Jesus may be the Messiah, at least in the way the Gospels present the story. And then a few days later, he's arrested and put on trial. And, uh, you know, the, the Gospels tell us strangely that. The Romans were such nice fellows that every Jewish holiday they would let the Jewish people have one get-out-of-jail-for-free card. Mm. And uh, they, they say that there were two prisoners in jail. There was this Barabbas fellow, who it's not clear exactly what he was, but as some kind of a robber or brigand, uh, possibly even a murderer. But he was a criminal. Uh, and in the jail with him is Jesus, who the crowds mm. had accepted five days earlier as the Messiah, or the would-be Messiah, and they get a choice, you know, who would you like us to free? And unexplainably, the crowd starts screaming, give us Barabbas. Now, Mm. McCombie points out that that's impossible to understand. Why in the world would they, um, you know, on one day be screaming that Jesus might be the Messiah, and five days later not use every opportunity to get him out of jail and, you know, continue with the mission? Um, and then it goes one step further. So, you know, I'll re- release Barabbas, but Pontius Pilate says, and what should I do with Jesus? And these people foaming from their mouth start screaming, crucify him. So mm. it's it's a very, very difficult story to understand. Um, and, you know, I guess if I was around back then, um, I guess I would have chosen Jesus over Barabbas if I had I, to. I- I had to think about it as well, and I thought, you know, what what little information we have about Barabbas is that he was some sort of a criminal. Uh, we're, we're not led to believe that that was in question, but uh, as you pointed out, Jesus was a, a, a Torah-observant Jew, teaching others to observe, observe the Torah, very zealous for his faith. And I think it would have been a no-brainer to ask for, you know, if that's the choice, give us back Jesus. Yeah. I, I don't have a problem with that. I don't understand. <laughs> it's, it's a very odd story, and it doesn't make sense. But uh, interesting question, Cynthia. Uh, now, getting on to it, this is where we are. The book of Daniel, of course, we are going through the list of 365. We're using the, uh, the, the, uh, the, refined, the refined list from, uh, thank you to Bill, not Carmen. Thank you to Bill from the Refiner's Fire. Uh, he went through the uh, list of 365 and sort of, you know, narrowed it down to 302 that he thought were pretty worthy. And uh, we're looking at that list. The first one that we're dealing with 
quotes from uh, Daniel 9.24, and it does say, 70 weeks are determined, 70 weeks, Michael, that are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting, everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, according to the list, the corresponding verse in the New Testament, uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy, Michael, is in uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The messianic prophecy fulfilled, according to the list, is to make an end to sins. Michael. Well, I have a very difficult time understanding how um, anyone can suggest that this passage is prophecy fulfilled, meaning that the the verse here describes six things that are to take place: the termination of transgression, the end of sin, wiping away of iniquity, bringing in everlasting righteousness, confirming the vision and the prophets, and anointing the holy of holies. The reality is that absolutely none of this has been fulfilled, and it's abundantly clear that Jesus didn't fulfill any of this. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what Christians probably insist is that Jesus did atone for the sins of those who believed in him. But the the passage, first of all, that's just uh, a belief, meaning that they believe that he atoned for their sins, uh, but there's no empirical proof that he did. It's just an assertion that they make. But more importantly, this verse doesn't speak about atonement for sin. It speaks about bringing an end to sin, mm-hmm. an ending, terminating transgression, wiping away iniquity. And no one on the planet would deny that there's still plenty of sin, transgression, and iniquity going on in the world. Mm-hmm. So one thing is clear, that uh, 2,000 years ago, there was not uh, an end to sins. Uh, even Christians today still sin. Um, Secondly, the visions of the prophets have not been fulfilled. Even Christians wait what they wait for what they refer to as the second coming of Jesus because the prophecies have not been fulfilled. And the truth is that none of the actual prophecies in the Tanakh about the coming of the Messiah have been fulfilled yet. So clearly when it speaks about uh, confirming the vision and the prophets, this hasn't happened yet. And it speaks about anointing the Holy of Holies not only did Jesus not anoint the Holy of Holies, it was destroyed shortly after his death. Mm. So one thing is clear that when we read this uh, introductory piece to the passage we'll be studying in the book of Daniel, uh, the one thing that's just abundantly clear is that it has not yet been fulfilled. Um, now, I will point out something as a sort of a preview to what we'll cover next week a little bit, which is that this uh, verse speaks about a period of 70 Weeks Now, uh, virtually everyone understands it to be 70 weeks of years, meaning uh, 70 periods of seven years, which would be 490 years. That's pretty straightforward. This is derived from the verse in Jeremiah. We're going to get to that, right? Uh, There are actually a few sources which would lead you to believe that it might be referring to not 70 weeks of days, but 70 weeks of years. For example, in Leviticus... It speaks about the sabbatical years as a period of seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
the the problem is, and we'll see this tonight and to next week for sure, that this init- this introductory verse speaks about a period of seventy weeks of years, which is four hundred and ninety years. Mm. But as we'll see tonight, the only thing that Christians really consider is the period of four hundred and eighty three years, which is sixty nine weeks of years. So even though the the passage begins by talking about uh, 490 years, it's not really what Christians uh, really look at, which is something we'll ultimately get to next week. Um, so I would say that this verse is uh, a non-starter because uh, no one has yet fulfilled this passage. We're still clearly awaiting the time when the utopia will come about mm. and there'll be a righteous world where sin is not something which we're dealing with uh, and uh, there will be uh, all of these incredibly utopian uh, predictions coming to pass, but it has not yet happened. An everlasting righteousness, as it says. Now, if if it has not happened, and it clearly has not, of course, the next question on everybody's mind is, well, what does this passage mean? Now, I've got three different translations open in, in front of me, uh, plus Plus, let me add, a calculator. So I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> you need to take off your shoes, by the way, not just use your <laughs> ten fingers. <laughs> so what does it mean? Where shall we begin? So I think that to understand what this is referring to when it speaks about this period of 490 years, mm. um, we're going to have to sort of uh, wade our way through the next verses. And it really will not become clear until next week. Um, this is basically, I would see this as an introduction, that what, what we're being told here is that there's going to be this period of 490 years, and uh, this period is really to prepare uh, for this tremendous change, this tremendous uh, new world order that will be taking place. Um, and that's all we really can know from this verse. We don't really have the full context of what these numbers mean and it will become clearer as we go through the you know next verses tonight and next week. But uh, that's all we really, I think, need to know at this point is that what uh, Daniel is told here is that there is this period of 70 weeks of years. And mm-hmm. it's to ultimately for the purpose of bringing about this uh, total transformation in the nature of the world. Um, and then the, the you know how this number really becomes significant and what it means uh, we'll have to see. Okay. Now the next one on the list, Daniel chapter nine verse twenty five, it says, "Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, which I have in a, a capitalized Messiah the Prince. This is in the New King James." Uh, Prince capitalized as well, it has here, so it's certainly asserting something. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. Now, the corresponding verse in the New Testament, the uh, fulfillment of this prophecy, according to the list, uh, Bill has given us John chapter 12, verses 12 to 13. Uh, it, it, it says here, and this is what you were referring to, the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Michael. Okay, so I hope everyone straps their seatbelts on because uh, 
this is going to take a lot of work for us to unpack. This, this is, and, and I should add before you begin that uh, the, these two verses are on the list, uh, the Messianic prophecy fulfilled is announced to his people 483 years to the exact day, Michael, to the exact day after the decree to build the city of Jerusalem. What sense can you make of this? Okay, so let's, let's go through, slowly through this. First of all, um, I want to say at the outset that there are really a boatload of massive problems with this claim, uh, and not just one or two. We're going to see there's a, a tremendous number of problems, and what I'll try to do is to outline the major ones. We're not going to get to even all the small ones. First thing to think about, you know, let's just sit back and just think about the assertion that's being made here. The, the claim is that Daniel is being given the exact date, not just the exact year, but the exact day of the year that the Messiah would be revealed. That's what we're being told is revealed in the book of Daniel chapter 9. Mm-hmm. And that on that very day that Daniel was told about, uh, hundreds of years later, Jesus actually rides into Jerusalem and was welcomed as the son of David by the crowds. Mm-hmm. So it's important to understand that if this really were the case, I mean, if Daniel was actually revealing this kind of information, this would be an incredibly powerful prophecy. And it would be much, much more powerful than Isaiah 53. Um, which is usually the favorite of Christian apologists, because Isaiah 53, we saw, had two fatal flaws. Number one, Isaiah 53 was a passage that is not clearly about the Messiah, as we discussed in great detail in our program on that topic. And number two, even if Isaiah 53 were about the Messiah, it's far from clear that this passage is speaking about Jesus, because it's only describing someone who is going to suffer, it doesn't identify Jesus as the sufferer. So you have Isaiah 53, which is such a popular proof text, and yet it has these two very, very serious flaws, and we saw actually dozens of other problems, but this is just to get off the ground, two serious problems. But here, in Daniel, at least according to the way the verse is being understood, you have a passage that seems to overtly be speaking about the Messiah, actually has the word Messiah in the verse itself. Um, you were reading from the New King James Version. The, the King James actually has the definite article and has the Messiah. Um, so you can't get more of a messianic prophecy than that when it actually mm. identifies the Messiah. And secondly, um, it, it's giving you, you know, at least some hook to connect the verse to Jesus in that it allegedly gives you the exact day on which he would be announced to the people. Mm. Um, so I would say that if, if the reading of this passage in Daniel is correct, um, it would be by far the most powerful messianic prophecy supporting the Christian claims for Jesus above all others. I mean, not even in the same league. Um, You're saying this would be the most compelling. This is the one that's going to take you to church on Sunday. Well, this would be, I, I'm not saying it would get me to church because I could still <laughs> see problems with it. But it, it would be, I'm saying, compared to all the other prophecies that Christians point to, this would be by far the most compelling, by far. Okay. Um, if that's the case, it is totally impossible to understand why the New Testament never pointed this out. I mean, the, the New Testament, really, when we've been looking at it, is a very large pile of extremely lame passages used to support the claim that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, some of them are incredible clunkers. And just if you look at the first seven or eight in the book of Matthew, 
they're, they're total clunkers. And yet here you have one that would have been very, very powerful. The, the New Testament should have wheeled it out and made a big deal about it. And yet the New Testament is silent, not a peep, not a word about the day that Jesus came in, the exact day that Daniel prophesied. Uh, it's impossible to understand. Um, not only did the New Testament not speak about this passage in Daniel, but uh, you know, a few decades later, when Justin Martyr was one of the most important early church fathers, writing in the beginning of the first century, first half of the of the second century, I'm sorry, um, he wrote his famous dialogue with the Jew Trifo, Trifo the Jew. He catalogs hundreds of messianic prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. He doesn't mention Daniel chapter 9. Um, in more recent times, Moshe Rosen, who was the founder of Jews for Jesus, wrote a book in 1991 called Overture to Armageddon. And on page 79, he has what he refers to as the 61 prophecies of the Old Testament and their fulfillment. Now, he says that there are actually 300 details to these 61, but these are the 61 major, main, serious uh, messianic prophecies in, in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the New Testament, and he doesn't mention this passage in Daniel at all. Um, so I find it interesting and hard to understand why, you know, if this passage in Daniel is actually giving you such incredibly price, precise information about the exact day the Messiah is going to come into Jerusalem and be announced, and actually it corresponds to the exact day that Jesus came into Jerusalem, that would have been a home run, and yet no one seems to speak about it. Um, now, there are... So, now, let me, let me just get this straight. Yeah. In, in all of the New Testament, this is not quoted, it is not cited, it's not paraphrased, it's not referred to. This is, what, is this what you're telling me? Nada, zilch, nothing. Just, it's ignored. The only, actually, the only the reference at all to Daniel 9 is that there is a, a reference in Matthew, later on in Matthew, to the abomination of desolation. Um, uh-huh. Now, it's important to understand that, that in context there, it's not speaking about the arrival of Jesus. It's there, it's referring to something that's going to happen, supposedly, in the future afterwards. Um, so what's missing, really, uh, what really should have been in the New Testament, what's missing is simply highlighting and just pointing out that this incredibly precise and clear messianic prophecy, I mean, it's again, mm-hmm. it's a verse which, the way many Christians translate it, actually has the phrase, the Messiah. You can't get mm. clearer than that. And it's giving you the exact day that he's supposed to march into Jerusalem. And if he actually did march into Jerusalem on that day, you know, if I were rooting for Jesus, I would have said, wow, that's quite amazing. Uh, that, that would be, if I was going to put any Old Testament passage in the New Testament, this would have been the one. And yet it's not mentioned. It's not And there. so just to, just to emphasize, because you just mentioned uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, it says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet. Now, clearly, based on that verse, they're well aware of, of, the, of the book of Daniel. There's, there's no secret. Therefore, if this is a messianic prophecy and they knew the day that they should expect the Messiah, what you're saying is, where's the bells and whistles? Where's the party? Where, where's, you know, but no one seems to make that connection. It's, it's overlooked, entirely overlooked, which, again, okay. would lead me to believe that that's, this is not how the passage in Daniel is understood. Mm-hmm. Um, because if it was understood the way this list maker is understanding it, it, this would have been a no-brainer to include in the list. It would have been 
you know, five stars and 25 bells and whistles announcing mm. it to the world. Um, and actually, as we're going to go through this, we'll see that um, there are, are really strong reasons for why you, you wouldn't want this passage in the list of messianic prophecies. But I think right. just to, as, a, as an introduction for tonight, to be aware of the fact that, again, if the um, list maker is correct in their interpretation of this passage and uh, you know, saying that it's giving us the exact date that the Messiah will come into Jerusalem and be announced to his people, and it happens to correspond to the date that Jesus came marching into Jerusalem, this should have been up front and center uh, featured with lights flashing in the New Testament, and yet the New Testament makes no reference to it at all, as well as many other Christians. Um, the truth is that there are numerous Christian commentaries to the book of Daniel that don't see this passage as predicting the date when the Messiah would be revealed, and they don't even see it as referring to Jesus at all. Um, some of these commentaries are the New Interpreter Study Bible, the Harper Collins Study Bible, the New English Bible, mm-hmm. Oxford Study Edition. I mean, you have basically many, many Christian scholars who are reluctant to see that this passage is pinpointing day on which Jesus would be announced. And we'll see tonight as we go through the passage itself why uh, Christians should be reluctant to connect this passage with Jesus. Um, now, at a, at a glance, when, when Christians read Daniel chapter 9 and they see the Messiah, uh, you know, capitalized there, the Messiah, the Prince capitalized, um, and, and here it, it mentions the Messiah twice, it's, uh, you know, they can almost be forgiven for, for making that leap because there's, no, uh, there's no, nowhere else in the uh, Christian Bible does it mention Messiah, you know, with a capital M. But interestingly, just to point out the trickery with the text, if I may, uh, off the top of my head, and maybe you can confirm this, I think the word is Mashiach, and that the word is used maybe 29 times in the Tanakh. Is that I think correct? It's 39. 39. 39 times in the Tanakh. Uh, and uh, quite often you'll find, and I, I encourage listeners to do their own research, have a look and see how many times it appears as Messiah. Quite often you'll see it as anointed with a lowercase a. Quite often you'll see it as anointed with an uppercase a. But only here in Daniel is it translated as Messiah twice. Only twice out of the 39 in the same passage and capitalized in most translations. Michael. And by the way, just to point out that some of the translations, like the King James, inserts uh, this definite article before the word Mashiach um, to have it read the Messiah. So there's no... Hamashiach. Right, they're reading it as Hamashiach, where the Hebrew doesn't say that. So Mm. it's very clear that by... You know, rendering the word as Mashiach, Messiah here, rather than anointed, as it's in every other place in the uh, translations, Christian translations, and capitalizing the letter M, where there is no capital letters in Hebrew, and inserting the definite article, it's very clear that the translators are trying to make it very clear to the reader who this passage is speaking about. They don't want to have any doubts whatsoever that this chapter in Daniel is about the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, it's very interesting. Um, but this is the least of the problems, I would say. This is wow, really okay. the least of the problems. Um, I think the truth is that when we look at the book of Daniel as a whole, we'll see that God did not want Daniel to reveal the future date of the redemption. You'll see, and when you get to Daniel chapter twelve, verses four and verses nine, 
that Daniel is told by God to seal up and conceal the vision until the end of time. That that when Daniel wants to reveal the the, the coming of the redemption and when it's going to take place, he's specifically instructed by God not to reveal it. Uh, and we see that throughout the Bible, um, God is not heavily invested in revealing this kind of information. It's not helpful to mankind. Um, we see in Genesis 49, verse 1, that Jacob wanted to reveal to his children the end of days. And yet, God didn't provide him with the information, because when you read the rest of the chapter, he never comes out and explains anything about the end of days, because it's not something that God wanted to reveal to him. So, it's pretty clear from the book of Daniel as a whole that this chapter is not giving us any information about the exact date on which the Messiah is going to come. Um, the, the first real serious problem um, to notice in interpreting uh, this verse, um, and, and this is going to be a little bit complicated, so I think the listeners will have to really uh, focus here, but mm-hmm. the, the first real serious problem um, in the in this interpretation of the verse, is that what it does is it compresses really two different periods of time into one period of time. Let me explain. Um, the The basic message that Daniel is given here is that there's going to be a period of 490 years that begins with the going forth of the word concerning the restoring and rebuilding of Jerusalem. Now, this period of 490 years is basically broken up into a period of seven weeks of years. Again, a week being seven years. So, there's a period of seven weeks of years or 49 years. And after that 49 years, there would be the appearance of an anointed ruler. It's called a Mashiach Nagid. Not just an anointed one, but a ruler, a Mashiach Nagid. And this anointed ruler comes seven weeks after the going forth of this word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. After this, there'll be a second period of 62 weeks of years, which is 434 years, where the city of Jerusalem will be built up, but they will be in troubled times. And finally, we're told that there'll be another period of seven years, one more week, which mm-hmm. describes how Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and how an anointed one will be cut off. That's basically what happens in this passage. And what the interpreter here is doing is really compressing the first two of those periods into one long period of 483 years. So what ultimately happens is when we study this passage in Daniel – we'll see that it really describes two anointed people, two messiahs, if you will, two mashiachs. Mm -hmm. In verse 25, it speaks about an anointed ruler who comes seven weeks of years after this starting point. And then we're told that 434 years later, there's going to be another anointed one, not a ruler, an anointed one who will be cut off. Mm Mm-hmm. But the list maker here basically um, uh, merges these two periods of time, compresses them into one period of time to give the impression that the anointed prince mentioned in verse 25 is the same person who was cut off in verse 26. That is the, the long and the short of the problem here, at least the initial problem. 
So again, what is actually described in Daniel here is very different than the list maker proposes. What's actually described in verse 25 is an anointed ruler who comes seven weeks of years after the starting time that the angel announced to Daniel. And then 434 years later, an anointed one is cut off in verse 26. Um, And again, we should note that verse 25 describes an anointed prince, and in verse 26, just an anointed one. Mm -hmm. Now, how do we know that this is really two separate periods of time describing two different anointed people rather than one period of time describing one anointed person? How do we know Mm -hmm. that to be the case? Now, if the angel was really trying to tell Daniel that an anointed one would come 69 weeks of years, again, just 483 years. If that's what the angel was trying to tell him, that an anointed one would come 69 weeks of years after the starting date, it wouldn't have expressed that period of time as 62 years and seven years. I mean, that when you read this passage, it speaks about seven weeks of years and 62 weeks of years. If the whole point was to describe a period of 69 weeks of years, the way the number 69 is expressed in the Bible and actually in every language on planet Earth, 69 is always described as 59 would be expressed. 69 would be expressed as 60 plus 9. Mm-hmm. That's how the number is expressed. For example, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 27, We have the number 69, and it's expressed as 60 and 9. Mm -hmm. You would never express the number 69 as 7 plus 62. That's just Mm. absurd. Um, So that, again, is the the first problem here, that the the list maker is compressing two periods of time into one period of time and uh, ignores the fact that the passage speaks about two different anointed ones, one an anointed ruler, one just an anointed one, ignores the fact that it speaks about a period of seven weeks of years, 49 years, and then it speaks about an additional 434 years after that, and it just compresses it all into one period of 483 years. And again, one of the reasons we know that it is two separate periods of time is that you would never express the number 69 as 7 plus 62. Another problem is that the reading of the list maker, meaning this reading which compresses it into to one period of time, it ignores the grammatical punctuation in the Hebrew text. There's There are uh, punctuation marks in the Hebrew text, and there's one here called an etnachta. Some people pronounce it as an etnach, which basically serves as a semicolon in the verse right after the phrase seven years, meaning that when you read the text in Hebrew, it says that there'll be a period of seven weeks of years. Stop. There's a semicolon there. And at Nachta. And then it says, and then for this period of 62 weeks of years, the city will be built up. But the, the list maker ignores that punctuation mark. Now, what is the proof? This is the slam dunk proof that the 62 weeks are a separate period of time from the seven weeks. So you see the proof really in verse 26. Because verse 26 begins by saying, and after the 62 weeks of years, Mm -hmm. then this anointed one will be cut off. Um, And actually, the Hebrew has 
a definite article. It's not a 62 weeks. It's the 62 weeks of years. And we, I've got that in the, in the New King James as well. Right, they have the definite article. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a distinct period of time. You can't just run it straight through with the previous seven weeks of years. So this is one serious flaw with the interpretation of this passage. It just literally butchers and mangles the reading of the text. Um, also, it's worth noting that the text says seven weeks and 62 weeks. It doesn't say seven and 62 weeks. I mean, that would have been a way possibly of expressing the period of 69 weeks to say seven and 62, but it doesn't say that. It's, it mm-hmm. makes it clear it's seven weeks and 62 weeks. Right. Now, there are actually many Christian translators of Daniel that do break up this into two periods of time by properly placing a semicolon into the text. So it's not as if all Christian translations misread this. But the list maker uh, bases, bases their calculus on uh, really running these two periods of time together. So to summarize before we move on, um, the claim is made here that the anointed ruler who would come in verse 25 refers to Jesus um, it's very problematic. Why? Because verse 25 is describing someone who comes at least 400 years before Jesus. Meaning that whatever the starting time for calculating these 490 years is, the anointed ruler in verse 25 comes after seven weeks of years, after 49 years. And Jesus is not around until at least 400 years after this. Um, so this is a, a very, very serious uh, problem with this interpretation. By the way, um, verse 25 describes a, an anointed ruler, and just to point out, for clarity's sake, Jesus was never anointed as anything, and he was certainly never a ruler. I mean, Christians might say that when he comes back one day, he will rule, but again, it's something that, nothing that he's fulfilled at this point in time. Now, another very, very serious problem with many um, Christian uh, interpretations of this verse, one of the biggest problems is that, and this is really where where our heads can begin to spin if it hasn't been complicated enough until this point. (laughs) One of the biggest problems is that the list maker doesn't explain to us how they did the math. I mean, Mm. they they just give you their final answer. Um, but they don't explain how they got to this point. How did they now, I will. I will add just to be fair, because uh, to be fair to Bill, <laughs> who made the list, uh, and he he specifically added this uh, this one on the list because uh, it's different to the original list. But you, you'll notice, uh, Michael, that there's an asterisk there, and it says in the list below an asterisk. This is on um, refinancefire.org, You know, on the on their list. Uh, it says an asterisk indicates those scriptures which need a little explanation to the reader. And that, that's just the note that they have there. We don't have the explanation, as you point out, but it's a very bold statement to say that, uh, you know, uh, announced to the people 483 years to the exact day, not even the exact year, but the exact day after the decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Michael. Well, so the question is, um, how do they get this, this calculation? Where does it come from? Yeah. When the angel Gabriel, Gabriel relates this timeline to Daniel, um, he speaks about the 490 years beginning with the word concerning the restoring and rebuilding of Jerusalem. The question is, when is this 
point? When is the starting point of the calculation here? And this is obviously a very critical question. You know, where do we begin this count of these 490 years? And as I mentioned before, the Christian only really counts 483 years. Um, so this is something that's been really explored by many, many Christian apologists to try and work these dates out. And I'll be sharing what is really the most common Christian presentation of these dates. What they say is that the the word or the commandment, actually in the King James and I think in the New King James, it mistranslates the Hebrew. It says the commandment uh, concerning the going forth to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. It doesn't say commandment in the Hebrew. It has the word, it's the word word, the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the normal the normal standard traditional Christian apologetic presentation is that the date that it's referring to is the date when Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia, gave permission to Nehemiah Nehemiah to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and they say that took place in the year 444 BCE. Now, there are so many problems with this assumption, uh, we'll try and go through a few of them. First of all, their calculation assumes that this decree by Artaxerxes was actually in 444 BCE, but that's really far from clear. I mean, that it could be that it was a different date. It's not so clear how they arrived at this date of 444 BCE, but in order not to make ourselves totally crazy, we'll accept uh, for the sake of argument, their proposal that indeed in 444 BCE, I probably sound like a New Yorker when I say that number, in, in 444 <laughs> BCE, Artaxerxes gave this uh, permission, this decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And that, that's truly the starting date that most Christians work with. The problem is, at least one of the problems, is that the permission given by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah was not to rebuild Jerusalem. Um, by the time Nehemiah comes on the scene, Jerusalem had already pretty much been rebuilt and it was already inhabited. And the only thing that Nehemiah was seeking permission to do was to make some repairs to the walls and gates of the city to help mm-hmm. defend it against the Samaritan marauders and attackers. So this passage that the list maker is referring to is not really dealing with a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. The truth is there were actually several prior decrees before this decree or this, actually it was a letter that was given to Nehemiah, Um, but there were several prior decrees given to the Jewish people concerning the rebuilding and the restoring of Jerusalem. First of all, there was Cyrus's decree, which mm-hmm. can be found in the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. There was another decree afterwards by Darius to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which was found in the book of Ezra, chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. And then there's actually an earlier decree by Artaxerxes, which was to restore and rebuild the city, which was given to Ezra, not to Nehemiah, and that's found in the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verses 11 to 16. So it's interesting that we have in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we have four decrees, so to speak, about going back to uh, Jerusalem and doing something with the city. Um, question is, why do Christian apologists seize upon this last letter of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah when there were actually three prior decrees that didn't just deal with reinforcing 
uh, the gates and the walls around Jerusalem. They actually dealt with the building of the city itself. So why do Christian apologists seize upon this letter of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah as a starting point for this calculation for these years? Um, and again, it wasn't even about rebuilding the city. It was about restoring the, the, the gates and the walls. Why did they choose the fourth of these decrees as their starting point for the calculations of Daniel 9? Could it be? The reason is because it helps get them to the year that they've predetermined corresponds to the year that Jesus came to Jerusalem. Is that possible? I wonder if that's why they chose this uh, date, this year. Mm. Um, now, before we continue pointing out the really the fatal flaws with using Artaxerxes permission to Nehemiah as a starting point, um, there's going to be many problems with this. Um, we should point out that there isn't really any mention in any of the sources about the exact day of the year when this decree was given, meaning that even if we accept the interpretation that um, this decree to restore and build Jerusalem is the decree by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah in the year 444 BCE. There's nothing about an exact date of the year when it happened. You know, it mm. just it, that's just somehow it's a fantasy. How they come up with this claim that Daniel here is giving you the exact date Day. that yeah. Jesus strode into Jerusalem. Um, now, aside from being absurd. It's also a very dangerous claim for them to make. That's not just absurd, but it's really a very dangerous thing for them to claim. And the reason it's dangerous is um, if they're asserting that Daniel is giving us the exact date when the Messiah would be announced, if it turns out that this date does not correspond to the date that Jesus came into Jerusalem, that would really leave him out in the cold in terms of being the Messiah. So it's sort of a very dangerous game they're playing when they play this game of putting all of their marbles onto this prophecy, this prediction in the book of Daniel, because if it doesn't work out, then it would prove Jesus is not the Messiah. Mm. And therefore, what you see uh, as we go through this, um, we'll see that they're really driven by the need to make the dates work out. Um, and that's going to influence everything they do, as we'll see in a few minutes. So let's do the math. <laughs> I think very few people I've, ever bothered. I've got my calculator. I've got my calculator handy. Okay, so if we begin in the year 444 BCE, which is their starting point, it's not mine, mm -hmm. that's the one they've chosen, and we make the mistake of adding 69 weeks of years, really you should only add 7 weeks of years, but if we make their mistake and add the 69 weeks of years, which is 483 right. weeks of years, um, it would get us to what year? So in my well, calculations... Got, it's, it's 39, right? 39 of the Common Era. Yeah. Now, I would say, uh-oh. <laughs> because That's a problem. It, that's, that's a big problem. There's no one on the planet, anyone, that suggests that the week that Jesus came into Jerusalem was in the year 39. Well, I think the general consensus is that Jesus lived to be the age of, uh, some say, 30, some say 33, uh, certainly not 39. So not only that, but... And I guess you're you're coming to this, but he was Jesus was born before Christ. <laughs> that that wasn't my concern. <laughs> my concern really is that you know they're going through all this effort to show that this calculation in the Book of Daniel points to Jesus, and it doesn't get you to the to the, to the there's nothing about this year 39 that that has to do with Jesus. This is already after mm -hmm. Jesus has left the scene. 
Mm, so what is certainly. what's a determined missionary to do? <laughs> so there's no problem. They basically use what scientists refer to as the fudge factor. Uh, <laughs> that's going to save the day. So how, how does the fudge factor does that work? work? So what they, what they assert is that Daniel was not speaking of normal solar years when he spoke about these years. Uh, a solar year has 365 and one quarter days. They say that Daniel was not speaking about those kinds of years. They say he was referring to what they call prophetic years. So it's not a solar year. They say that Daniel was speaking in terms of prophetic years and that they say prophetic years have 360 days. Um, oh, boy. Now, what, how, how do we arrive? I mean, okay, okay. That, that requires some explanation. <laughs> Well, I, I think that the, the reason that is because it helps them with their calculations. And here's how well, it works. But how do, how do we define a prophetic year uh, as being 360 days? What do they, re- what do they pin that to? So I'll give a reference for anyone that wants to study this topic. Um, Gerald Siegel, S-I-G-A-L, has an entire book on these few verses in the book of Daniel called Daniel 70 Weeks. And he goes through uh, a lot of the um, sources that Christians claim uh, sort of back up this idea of a year of 360 days. Um, it would take us two years to actually go through the material. So we're not going to do it together. No. But I, I would suggest that they come up with this because, again, it's the fudge factor that allows them to um, uh, uh, have Daniel arrive at a more accurate date. So what they do is they say that that Daniel is speaking about a period of 483 years, Mm -hmm. which again is a mistake because Daniel was speaking about a period of 490 years. And even then, he was speaking about really in terms of this anointed ruler coming only after the first seven weeks of years. But let's just work with their mistakes here, that they're going with a period of 483 prophetic years, so that okay. would be f- I, yes. I, I, I'm playing with my calculator, and I think I think that it, if I've done this correctly, it accounts for about six and a half years. So here's how they get. The, here's how they do the math. They take 483 years and they multiply mm-hmm. it by 360, mm-hmm. which comes out to 173,880 days mm-hmm. of prophetic years. And what they do to convert that back into solar years is then to divide by 365.25, right, 365 and a quarter, mm-hmm. to get 476 years. So this is really an adjusted, uh, adjusted solar years to be 476. And now when you start with the year 444 BCE and you add 476 years, it takes you to 32 CE. Okay. And that's so reasonable. A- okay. Now, one problem, obviously, is... How do we know the exact year? Forget about the exact date. You know, forget about whether it's April 15th or April 22nd. How do we know the exact year that Jesus came into Jerusalem during Passion Week? I mean, the estimates of scholars will range from about 28 CE to 33 CE. There's about a five-year window. And no one really knows for certain what year Jesus came into Jerusalem and was crucified. Um, it's up for grabs, really. Um, and so when the uh, calculations here take us to the year 32, we've got to basically take their word for it that that's the exact year that Jesus was killed. Um, can, I, can I just, no, I just need to get this straight in my head, yes. though, because as I mentioned before, Jesus was born before Christ. 
So my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, most scholars agree that he was, and, and this is based on uh, mention of a, of a couple of rulers in, in the Gospels, uh, that they both ruled at the same time in, in uh, between uh, uh, 6 and 4 BCE. Right. Now, now uh, yeah, yeah, is they, that they correct? Calculate, yeah, th- there's almost no one that thinks that Jesus was born in the year 0 or 1. Um, now, if he, if he is born in, in 4 BCE, let's, you know, for the, you know let's, let's go with the conservative figure, uh, and he lived for 33 years, then it cannot possibly exceed 29 of the common era. Is that fair? Well, Here's the problem. There's two issues here. One is what was the year that he was killed? And the other issue is how old was he when he died? Daniel does not um, you know, give us any information about how old he was when he died because that would depend. You know, the, the list maker here is assuming he dies in the year 32. But we don't know what year he was born. So the, the actual date, the actual age of Jesus at this point is up for grabs in terms of what year he was born. Was it 6 BCE? Was it 4 BCE? Um, I don't think anyone really knows for sure. So the, the question of how old Jesus was is not really what's at stake here. The question is, regardless of how old he actually was, what was the year in which he was killed? That's really hmm. the, the, the question here. Okay. And uh, again, no one knows. And again, honest hmm. people and intelligent people have argued about this for hundreds of years. Um, you know, there are so many books written about trying to ascertain what is the exact. No one knows. I mean, literally, if it's debated to this day, no one really knows. People can say what they believe with a lot of authority and a lot of uh, earnestness, but it's something which is far from clear. Um, mm. But this is as far as we've gotten to, to really explain how this list maker comes up with this date of 32. Uh, again, they don't really tell us how they get to the exact day of the year, but that's uh, neither here nor there. Um, the problem for us in terms of deconstructing this is that this whole idea of prophetic years is just totally bogus. Um, there is absolutely no mention of prophetic years either in the Bible or in any other Jewish sources. It's just totally made up by, these, by, by this need to come up with a fudge factor. Uh, the way the Jewish calendar works, just to spend a few moments on it, is Please. that the Jewish calendar is based upon both the sun and the moon. The moon yeah. And you see this in Genesis 1. 14 to 18, where it says that the sun and the moon will be for signs, for seasons, for days, and for years. Mm -hmm. And scripture tells us that Passover is on the 15th day of the first month. Mm -hmm. And we see in Exodus chapter 12 that we calculate the months according to the moon, meaning that the, the, the month is based upon the coming of the new moon. So, really, the lunar calendar is a calendar which lasts for 354 days in a year. That's how long a lunar calendar is, which is 11 days shorter than a solar year. So, what happens is, because a lunar calendar is 11 days shorter than a solar year, so every three years, a month will be lost, because you're losing 11 days a year. After three years, it's 33 days. You're losing basically a month every three years, So, which means after nine years you're losing three months. And when you lose three months every nine years, what happens is as you go through the years... Seasonal drifts. It'll drift so that Passover is going to be in the spring, and then nine years later it'll be in the summer, and then nine years later it'll be in the winter, and then 27 years later it's back in the springtime again. Mm -hmm. Um, 
that, that's what happened, by the way, in an Islamic calendar. The Islamic calendar is totally lunar, and so Ramadan travels around the year. It could be in the winter yeah. one year, and it could be years later, it could be in the spring. However, in the scripture, Deuteronomy 16.1 tells us that Passover has to come out in the spring. It's the spring holiday. So if the lunar calendar, which is the calendar that establishes the months uh, of the year, is going to always be 11 days shy of a solar calendar, and you would have the holidays then drifting through the year, so what do we do? So in order to sync the lunar and the solar calendars, uh, the holidays will remain in the appropriate seasons, we make up for those lost 11 days by adding a 13th month about every three years. A leap month. A leap month, yes. And by adding that extra month about every three years, the extra 11 days is taken care of, and Passover basically stays in the spring. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, we're going to do one more problem tonight before we uh, say goodnight. And this is a little bit complicated, but I think it's really, from my understanding of this chapter, um, the most serious problem in suggesting that the starting point for this counting of the years is this decree uh, to Nehemiah, to Nehemiah by Artaxeres, uh, which again they claim is in the year 444 BCE. I think there's a very, very serious problem using this as a starting date, and it's going to require a little bit of an introduction to understand. Okay. First of all, one thing should be obvious to any listener tonight, which is that the, the, one of the great problems with understanding these verses in the book of Daniel that we've been looking at is that we've jumped into the middle of the ninth chapter without paying any attention to the context of the verses, meaning that we don't, we don't know what's happening in this chapter. We just sort of parachuted right down into verses 24 and 25, and mm-hmm. somehow we are under the illusion that we can understand what's going on without having to worry about what happened prior to that, mm-hmm. which is obviously absurd. We always know that a text without a context is pretext. Mm-hmm. So, to decipher verses 24 to 27, again, we'll have to try and finish this next week, but to, to really make sense of these verses without having previously studied the chapter from the beginning, uh, you know, it doesn't make any sense, but this, of course, rarely stops our missionary friends. Um, so, when we go to the beginning of the chapter, this is chapter 9, verse 1, we're told when this story takes place. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, in the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans, by the way, that's another name for the Babylonians. Mm -hmm. So, this is the first year of the reign of Darius, who is a Mede, which means he's a Persian. And this story, we're, we're told now, Daniel is giving us in the very first verse... He, he's positioning us in terms of when this is going on. And we're going to see it's critical to understand the whole chapter. We're told that this is really at a point of transition of power. The, the Babylonians had been uh, in power, and they were conquered by the Persians. And the, another name for the Persians is the Medes. Mm-hmm. And th- this is in the first year of the reign of Darius, the Mede. Now, what we're told is that Daniel at this point was very bothered. He was reading these prophecies in the book of Jeremiah, and he was bothered. He couldn't figure it out. He didn't understand what was going on. There was something that was puzzling Daniel, 
about these prophecies in the book of Jeremiah. Now, the book of Daniel doesn't tell you which prophecies they were, and that's why mm. this chapter requires a little bit of studying, but um, it doesn't take too much time before you track down two different prophecies in the book of Jeremiah that speak about 70 years of Babylon. Yep. And when we take a look at these two passages in Jeremiah, we'll begin to understand why Daniel was bothered. Now, the first of these prophecies was in chapter 25 of Jeremiah, mm-hmm. verses 11 and 12. And 12. It says, uh, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So that's an interesting prophecy, meaning that the, the, when the first temple was destroyed, the, the, most of the Jewish people were taken into exile into Babylon. It was destroyed by the Babylonians, mm-hmm. and the, the nation of Israel is more or less taken into, there takes place over different periods of time. There's an initial exile, and then there's a more major exile, but this was a terrible uh, tragedy. This is an incredible tragedy that the temple was destroyed, and they're now in exile. They're living in Babylon. Mm-hmm. And Jeremiah predicted that the Babylonian kingdom will come to an end after 70 years. So that's one piece of information that Daniel is aware of. And what's interesting is that we're told in verse 1 here in chapter 9 that this the scene here is in the first year of Darius the Mede, who had conquered the Babylonians. So what we see here is that those 70 years predicted in Jeremiah 25, they've come to pass, right? Because we're mm-hmm. told that after 70 years, Babylon will basically be no more. They're going to be destroyed. And right. at this point, Babylon has been destroyed and taken over by the Median, the Persians. The now, Persians, right. nothing should be confusing to him. However, <clears throat> there was another prophecy in Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse, verse 10. 10. It says, for thus says, the Lord, uh, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word to you and cause you to return to this place. Wow. You know, when you think about it, um, you know, the, the nation of Israel uh, is in exile. And if you had to imagine what was more important for them, to see their enemies vanquished or to see themselves go back to their land and rebuild the temple. Hmm. So, you know, obviously they're not going to get back to their land unless the enemy has been vanquished, mm-hmm. uh, unless they were able to convert everyone. But clearly <laughs> the, the more important, you know, problem was getting back to the land, getting back to Israel, rebuilding the temple. So, chapter 25 spoke about the demise of Babylon. Chapter 29 speaks about the return to the land of Israel. And here is where the problem for for Daniel kicks in. Because Daniel is now sitting at a point where the kingdom of Babylon has come to an end. And he assumed, this was the assumption Daniel had made, he had assumed that these two different prophecies in Jeremiah, chapter 25 and 29, were uh, basically, uh, they, they were speaking about one period of time. He assumed that this prophecy of 70 years were basically the same period of 70 years. And his assumption was 
that when chapter 25 was fulfilled, when Babylon came to an end, he assumed that that was also going to be the time at which chapter 29 would be fulfilled, when they're going to go back to the land. Because again, Mm -hmm. he's reading two prophecies about 70 years of Babylon, after in the first prophecy, Babylon is destroyed, in the second prophecy, they're going back to the land, he has seen Babylon destroyed, He's now sitting in Babylon, and he doesn't see any forward motion. He doesn't see any movement of the Jewish people back to Israel. And he's wondering what's happening. He's wondering, God brought about the fulfillment of Jeremiah 25. Babylon has come to an end. But what happened to our going back to Israel? Why are we still Mm -hmm. here in Babylon? And he was very broken about this, and he was wondering... Is there the possibility that maybe God is delaying the fulfillment of Jeremiah 29, or maybe God's going to cancel that promise altogether because of our sins? Mm. That was what was disturbing him. He's very, very broken. He's very disturbed. You know, there's a few times in the book of Daniel where he's just puzzled and he can't figure out heads from tails what's going on. We saw it back in chapter 7 of Daniel. He gets this vision. He can't understand what this vision is, and an angel... The same angel is here. Gabriel has to come and explain to him the meaning of the vision. So here he's just broken. He's crying out, what's going on? How come this prophecy in the book of Jeremiah is not working out? And what he begins to do, because again, his assumption was that perhaps God is going to delay this promise or cancel it because of the sins of the people. Mm. Daniel launches into an incredibly poignant prayer, really, and confession for the sins of the Jewish people. It's a very long, beautiful, we actually became part of the Jewish liturgy that we say in the prayers every day. Um, But that's basically what's happening here in Daniel chapter 9. That's the context of this chapter. Now, how does that help us? So this, this is really the major point I'm trying to make. After this long prayer and confession, so what finally happens in verse 24 is actually a few verses earlier, the angel... Gabriel shows up, and he says, I'm coming to clarify everything for you. I'm going to give you skill to understand. Right, you're going to become wise. You're going to understand. It's going to, meaning that you are now confused. You're now upset you, because you don't know when the people are going to go back to Israel. It's very bothersome to him. It, it's really eating at him. So you could see, first of all, what's very important here is that the context of this chapter is not about when the Messiah is going to come. The context of the ninth chapter of Daniel concerns when the Jews who are in Babylon, when are they going to go back to Israel and rebuild the temple? And the angel says, I'm going to come to make it clear to you. I'm going to come to clarify everything. Now, here's the problem. And Think about this. Uh, to really sort of focus on this. According to the Christian interpretation of this chapter, the starting point for all of Gabriel's calculations would begin with Artaxerxes' permission given to Nehemiah to restore the walls and gates of Jerusalem. That's the right. Christian interpretation. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, when would that take place? Meaning, at this point, when Daniel is sitting here in this uh, first year of the reign of Darius, the coming of Artaxerxes to give this decree to Nehemiah was still decades away, and Daniel had no way of knowing when this decree would be given. 
So he would walk out of this meeting with Gabriel with absolutely no clarity and resolution to his concerns. However, Gabriel specifically said, I'm coming to make everything clear to you, Daniel. So what is clear is, what, what is clear to me is that to make any sense at all, Daniel had to have been given some access to the starting point of Gabriel's calculations, meaning if, if the angel Gabriel is giving him this whole countdown, is going to be seven weeks of years and 62 weeks of years and a whole total period of, he's giving him this whole countdown and there's a time to start counting, it's very obvious that he would have to have known at one point the, starting, the, the, the counting would start. Meaning that if he would walk out of the meeting with Gabriel and have no clue as to when this period of time to begin counting would begin, he could walk out of the meeting more depressed than he was in the beginning Mm. because he'd have no clarity at all. I mean, it could be that this decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is going to be 100 years away or 500 years away. Mm. So I think that is, it's not so easy to see this, but I think that is one of the most serious problems with the Christian assumption, or at least the list maker's assumption, that the starting date for all of these calculations that Daniel is being given is the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, which doesn't take place for decades after this uh, meeting between Daniel and the angel. And Wouldn't so, it be cruel? Wouldn't it be cruel, Michael? Because it does say in verse uh, 23, uh, Gabriel says, look, I, I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. But if uh, if the Christian interpretation is true, and as you well point out, he would have walked out of the meeting none the wiser, more confused, probably more depressed, uh, with, with nothing to, to pin his hopes on. Why? Because he's greatly beloved? It just right. doesn't make sense. I mean, he, he clearly, in this passage, is being given helpful information. And it's very clear that when the angel gives him this whole timeline of counting, uh, you know, seven weeks of years and then 62 weeks of years, he would know Mm. at what point the the counting begins. He'd have access to it. And the problem with reading this from the time of uh, Artaxerxes' decree, um, he would not know when that's going to happen yet. Mm. Uh, It would be a point, it would be be a starting point for the calculations that he would have no access to. He wouldn't know when it was going to happen. He would walk out of the meeting with the angel totally confused, and he wouldn't have any benefit from this meeting in which the angel told him, I'm coming to make everything very clear to you. So what? Which, which would almost be a cruel joke as opposed to offering Daniel some relief. Exactly. So what I'm trying to say here is that the starting point for the calculations had to be a point prior to this meeting with the angel, meaning that mm. Daniel would be able to say, oh... I'm going to start from that point in time that I'm aware of and we'll count forward and then we'll we'll see exactly what the angel we didn't yet describe yet what the angel's predicting but mm. he wouldn't he he would be able to work with these numbers if he knew the starting point and therefore he has something to anchor to exactly the starting point had to be a year prior to this year when he's meeting with the angel and so what I like to do is break here And uh, what I tried to do so far, just to sum up, is give at least some. I didn't really go through all of the problems. I tried to give some of the problems with the the reading of this passage according to the way the list maker is trying to read it to show why it's just fatally flawed. 
and to try and set the stage for next week when we will both uh, analyze and de- deconstruct, really, and, and criticize, critique their reading of verse 26 and 27, and then try to step back and explain what's really going on here. We're going to be doing that next week. So we just, <laughs> I, I'm not too sure, Michael, but I think uh, this is the first program where we've only ticked off two on the list. But clearly it had to uh, have some time taken. And thank you so much for taking the time to help us understand. It's very much appreciated. Uh, Michael Skoback of Jews for Judaism.ca. Jews for Judaism.ca is the website. Jews for Judaism in Canada. Thank you, my friend. And I look forward to speaking to you next week when we can get into verses uh, uh, 26 and 27. Sounds good. Until then, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's word. Shalom. Thank you.